morning. Hey, welcome those of you who are joining us online. Oh, that was exciting. I was like, okay, redo. Um, Glad you're here. I'm glad to be with you. Those of you who are in the room, uh, so glad that you're here with us the week after Easter where we got to celebrate the resurrection. And that's why we gather on weekends, on Sundays, is this is really every weekend represents Resurrection Sunday, which is why, again, we gather as a faith community here in this space online in San Francisco. And those of you who are actually continuing to join us um, around the country, um, we are starting a new series today. Um, and the, some people would be like, what's a series? And a series is really a conversation that we use for little short stints that just uh, add on to each other. So it's difficult to just have a 25-minute to a 20-minute conversation about a topic or uh, a small piece of scripture. And so what we do is we kind of tease that out into an overlying topic where we get to dig in and understand something with a little bit more depth. And so we can unpack it over a multiples of weeks. And so I wanted to give you actually just a little like vision casting for the future of what we're going to be talking about. So this is a series that we're going to do for about seven weeks called Embracing the New. I'll come back to that in just a second. Then we're going to spend 11 weeks in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah um, is somebody that I think that is uh, valuable for us to learn from. Um, it's an Old Testament figure, and I think there's a lot for us to unpack. So we're going to spend 11 weeks unpacking the life of Jeremiah, how it teaches us how to live, what we learn from God when it does that. And then it's looking like um, I have this deep desire in this new season that we're in to try to dive deeper into our biblical understanding and the way that we're feeding each other and really truly seeing this idea of our vision statement of transformation, transforming our homes, uh, transforming the, the community because of that and everything around the world by pursuing God, building community, and unleashing compassion. And I think this pursuing God is something that we're going to be deeply focused on, and then the community that's built from that is going to be really beautiful. So we might end up spending like a m multiple years walking through a book in the Bible in the New Testament, maybe Matthew or John, where we're going to unpack verse by verse, really understanding who God is and what that means in our life. So to kind of kick that off, uh, as we're looking into the future of these conversations and the growth that we want to experience and the way that we want to live, this series is called Embracing the New. And over the next couple weeks, um, I want you to be able to see some new things that are going on. Obviously, we're coming out of, we're trying to figure out how to come out of this COVID season. And things are just different. I know that um, this last week, I went to one of my favorite restaurants. It was open for the first time in like a year. And I went there, and they didn't have, like, the favorite thing I go there to get. You know how you go to a place, and you're like, that's the thing I drove all the way here for. It was like an hour wait. I go in, and then I'm, like, looking at the menu, and I'm like, where is this? And they're like, no, oh, buddy. And I'm like, don't buddy me right now. Tell me where this is at. Like, <laughs> this is not a buddy conversation. I had to embrace the new, which forced me I had to try something different, and it was actually really good. Um, but I had to, like, shift, right? We're all having to, like, shift into these new things. And so as you are coming back to in-person services or kind of reopening things and adventuring out, there's new things that we're going to be discovering. And God did new things all throughout Scripture and prophets did these things to mark or to show or as this kind of prophetic art of things that were different, although it was the same and what it was used for to shift. And so next week, we're going to have a conversation about rivers of living water. Some of you have noticed on our campus, we have a fountain out in the lobby that represents 
something that we're going to be walking into and how water was used all throughout Scripture and the story that it tells. And the next week, we're going to talk about a stump in the ground. Those of you who have been on our campus and the Benicia campus, we have a stump out in the lobby and how, uh, what that represents and prophetically the story that it tells, even in the Davidic time where they thought the line was dead, but a new thing, a new shoot came out from the stump, which eventually led to the line of Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about a prayer wall and what that tells us, the story that's telling us. We have a prayer wall out in our lobby where the rest of this year you're going to be able to go by there and pray for people and see what's going on and connect to their life and what's, what's happening and be a part of that as a community. And it's a testimony to what God's doing, who he's with, and the way that he's moving. Uh, get this, on Mother's Day, we're going to have baby dedications, which is May 5th. Um, but we're also going to have a conversation about comfy chairs. <laughs> Those of you who have been before know that you're sitting in some more comfortable chairs right now rather than these like hard black chairs that kind of jolt around on you a little bit. But um, in this idea of what that says and, and, and what it means. And then we're going to have a conversation about taste and smells and the senses um, and so we're going to have all of these different kinds of conversations, and I want you to have kind of like your eyes wide open to what are the new things that you're seeing or noticing or can connect with, because these things, and we'll see this throughout the scripture, typically can point back to God and his creation and what he's doing and how he's moving. We're going to capstone all of this on May 23rd with a Sunday uh, that is just uh, worship and baptisms. So for people who are making a decision that want to walk into that as we want to mark something significant in our church in this season as we're embracing the new and the new life and how baptism represents a resurrection and a new thing. So that's kind of what this series is about. I'll refer it throughout uh, the conversation over the coming weeks, um, but today it's really just a kind of kick off and to grasp like what does this embracing new thing look like or what's something that was transformed into something new. And so I grabbed um, the scripture that we're going to dig into today is, is in John. It's in the New Testament. John was one of the disciples. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, uh, and I'm going to be in chapter 2, 1 through 12, and we're going to hang mostly around 6 through 11, but I'm going to read the whole thing for you right now. If you have your Bibles or your phone, you can follow me along throughout the service or you guys can watch it up here. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus said to his, uh, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. Uh, when Jesus, uh, he had been invited to this wedding, when the wine was gone at this wedding, Jesus' mother said to him, we have no more wine. And so Jesus says, woman... Why do you involve me? Now, real quick, woman in this uh, language, as it's saying, wasn't like a bad term. It wasn't like a put down. Jesus replied, my hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars. It's going to be important later. The kind used by the, law, by the Jews for ceremonial washing or for purification washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some water out and take it to the masters of the banquet. 
they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine or the box wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. And it says, and what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Joan hones in on this this miracle, this sign, this first one that he did. And I want to just talk about this concept of signs just for a second. We know scholars tell us that actually there's this idea that the first 11 chapters of the book of John, John 1, uh, chapter 1 through 11, is, would be called the, the book of signs. This is where John tells us that, hey, there's this first sign. Then we see in John chapter 4, where something's taking place, and then he stops and says there's a second sign. John has meaning behind everything that he's saying. Um, and he's kind of telling this story that we're watching, and it's kind of this movie situation. You know in a movie, no one's actually staring at the camera, but you're just watching, and you're invited into the action. And so that's really how John's written, and then John suddenly pauses in a couple specific spots, and it's like he turns to the camera and says, now this was the first sign, right? Making sure that we're brought into this to understand what was taking place. After he talks about the second sign, he kind of just leaves us to our own uh, count. And so you have water to wine here, and this one is the first sign, which of course echoes um, the Exodus story where God turned water of the Nile into blood, and this kind of new Moses image, which is painted all throughout kind of the New Testament as Jesus is this new Moses, uh, the new law, right? Or the law has gone away. There's this new covenant that's taking place. And so specifically the signs um, that there are taking place that we can see, if you were to look through on your own, I'll point them out. You have the changing of water into the wine in Cana. That's in John 2 first. Then you have the healing of the royal's official, which is in John 4. You have the healing of the invalid or the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. Then that leads into the feeding of 5,000 in John 6, which right following that story is considered the fifth, which is walking on water, and then healing the blind man from birth. Um, That's in John 9. And then you have the seventh sign right here, which is the, the raising of Lazarus found in John 11. And then you don't have anything for a minute. You have these seven signs um, that a lot of scholars and theologians see this evidence as what's something called a new creation theology, which is this setup in the Gospel of John to the resurrection of Jesus, implying that that's the eighth sign, that the resurrection is this eighth sign indicating this week of creation um, that then, you know, God created for six days. The seventh day was a Sabbath. He rested, which was the day of completion or a number of completion, and then a new creation beginning with the resurrection. So all the signs stop. You have these seven, which is great, again, because for uh, the Jews, this is a really symbolic number of completeness, which is interesting that we'll talk about in a minute why there was six water jars. It was really important that John was, uh, again, putting in there. It represents this, it doesn't represent this completeness, which is really important. But then you get seven signs, ultimate sign of resurrection in this dawning of this new world. So there's all this imagery 
that we're looking for and, and that we're going to get to look through over the couple weeks. And this image and these signs all are pointers to something that either God is up to, there's something that, uh, about ourselves that we get to learn, and there's something about the world that we get to learn, and all of these different signs. And as we read through scripture, that's a really great way to like tease it out is, what do I learn about God from what I'm reading? What do I learn about humanity from what I'm reading or how it impacts the world? And then what can I learn for myself or what does this mean for myself? So anytime that you're reading through scripture or doing a study, ask yourself those three questions all the time. If you're like, I don't know how to do a devotional or how to break this down, ask yourself those three questions. What from this am I reading? Can I learn about God, humanity, and myself? So I love that this is this idea of a miracle, that this is an interruption on this micro level, and then it gets this macro application. And here's the beautiful thing that I love about miracles is that they don't just kind of hover in these random spaces, but they become the part of the fabric of creation and the story that we're all part of. It's, this is restoring. It's, it's like a weed that's cracking up through the concrete of this decaying, demonic-filled, evil world, and that, that there's this birth of a real new creation. Like, it's wine time, Right? <laughs> Like this, this water that was stale or stagnant gets turned into this new, robust, beautiful thing, this stale water. That even the second meaning of what it means for the world is it's like taking the stale water of history, what he's going to do. Let's take the stale water of life and the way people that have tried to connect to God, and let's bring it to this new phase. It says nearby stood six stone water jars. These are the kinds uh, that were used for the Jewish ceremonial washing, holding each from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is really important for us Gentile readers. We didn't understand all of the things about the significance of, of numbers and also that they had these purification or these ceremonial washing rituals. This is crucial because this is what he actually came to do. He didn't come here to make wine in this moment. There's a hint here with these six stone jars, and they're at a wedding, and this is what this is used for. And so if we were going to a wedding, and we were there for several days, that's how long these uh, weddings would last, we'd be there hanging out all day, and we'd go to sleep, and we'd wake up, we'd eat some food, and what we would do is we would get dirty, right? And so for this ceremonial washing or cleansing, these jars were literally used to go and wash your hands, right? Or wash the dishes to clean things as you had been touching things, that you would use this to purify your hands or from a ritual standpoint, because the Old Testament said if you like touch this thing, you're going to need to wash. Or if you're near this thing, you need to wash, right? You got to wash all these things. This was the rites of purification that's represented in these six water stone jars, And John tells us, remember, everything that John says has some sort of meaning behind it. And this is what he's trying to say. He tells us that there's these six. And to a Jew, six is always this really important number because it's one less than perfection. Just as I talked about a minute ago of the six days of of, uh, creation and then uh, a Sabbath. And what he's trying to say here, I love how um, William Barclay is a theologian that says this, that the water pots stand uh, for the imperfections of the Jewish law. They came up just short, six. Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law to put in their place 
the new wine of the gospel of his grace. Jesus turns the imperfection of religion into the perfection of grace. This is the meaning behind what he's doing. This isn't just a throwaway line for John. This is maybe the quintessential theological point of the whole passage, that Jesus has come to say that there is a new era dawning in the world. There's a new thing that's happening, and here's what it means, that everything that's represented by religion has now reached its point of climax, and I'm here to shut it down. Everything that's been represented by these rules and regulations, the way that you did these things, has been good. It's reached the top, and now religion and ritual is going to be giving away to something new. Religion and ritual is going to be giving away to relationship. That God has entered the world and is turning this old way of connecting to himself that's represented in these ritual extended out here with religion in itself... And he's saying, now I'm superseding it. I'm bringing the, to its intended point, which was the law or this religion. This is the summary of what John has told us in John 1.17, just this chapter before. It said, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That the law had its moment. This is the old covenant. But now it's giving away to something else, something new, that Jesus is going to be this new wine, and that all of these other things are coming to an end. Paul says in Philippians 3, he talks about this idea where he used to try to do all of these things, and it felt really good to be involved in religion because it just does, right? Like to be in that uh, ritualistic and that you're connected to these things and you have this regular rhythm. But Jesus is saying like, hey, the temple sacrifices or whatever religion you belong to, if you belong to a religion that is sacrificed, you know, there's a sacred place that you set aside for the gods to dwell over in, or there's rituals where you have to sacrifice animals or grain, it's all over. If there's holy land that you're fighting for, you're thinking that this land is more holy than that land, we need to make sure that it's all over, it's gone. Jesus shows up and says, hey, we can't climb up a mountain to God anymore. So I have come down the mountain to do for you, bringing the sweet, a vibrant, a true relationship of life with God. The law, in a sense, has given birth now to a new way of connecting with the God of the universe. And so, friends, are you willing to walk from the old stone water pots of religion? And give your life to the one who gives you new wine or not? Or are you going to be showing up here or in your life and your relationship with Jesus saying, where'd that thing I like to eat go? Where'd that thing go? Where'd that comfortable thing go? This is how I do this. The next story right after this, he really does kind of the same thing. It's in the temple, right? And he goes in there and kind of shuts it down and storms everything up and it's basically him doing the same thing, saying, and he goes, uh, this thing's over because actually now the temple of my body is what's going to matter now. So Jesus is brought to a climax, and religion has given a way to relationship, that he's come to shut down religion as the way that people d- knew this. And he's doing this all because he's saying, hey, I'm going to be the Messiah. It's the law that's now going to give away to grace. Uh, and now we can can't go back. So why can't you go back? When it's time to embrace new things, why is it important not to go back? Well, let me give you a couple analogies and why you wouldn't want to go back. For those of you who have had children or grandchildren, 
I know when we were um, expecting our first baby, we, we went and we got like an ultrasound and they give you like a little ultrasound video and at that time it was on a little DVD, right? And you'd like show everybody and you're like, watch this thing. And it's like, <laughs> but still you're like, whoa, look at it. That's, that's Madeline or whatever your child's name was. That's my kid. And, you, and you, maybe you grandparents, you have like an actual paper picture of like a mammogram, right? Or not a mammogram, I said that really wrong. <laughs> That's going to go down in the history books. <laughs> An ultrasound. Why did I even say that? Well, we're embracing the new. Can't go back. All right. You're carrying around a photo of a baby, a picture of a baby. Oh, wow. I'm going to recover. All right. So you're carrying around a picture of a baby, and uh, <laughs> you, you, your child comes, your grandbaby comes. And what do you not do? You don't go around showing some ultrasound video or an ultrasound picture, right, when the real thing, or like the now grown-up new thing is right there, right? Is that, you follow that? <laughs> I shouldn't have used that at all. I'll use something else. <clears throat> A rocket. A rocket takes off, and it's got these boosters on the side of the rocket, and as the rocket's taking off, the boosters are doing the work to get the rocket out into space. And at a point, the rocket has reached, it, 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 the boosters have reached their climax. Like they've finished doing what they need to do and they actually break off, right? And then the rocket continues to go on. Now, if you wanted to go back, you can't go back and then put the boosters back on the rocket because it will ruin the entire mission. It will destruct the entire um, mission that's going on. It'll, it'll blow up the whole rocket. And so there's this new thing that's going on. When you recognize the old and where it's gotten you, you have to be ready to take on the new and the next. And that's what Jesus is doing. Paul, Paul's entire argument in Galatians 3 and 4 is that the law was set up as a, a teacher, a, a tutor to prepare you for this new thing. Right? Like if you have a tutor, you only use a tutor for so long when you're in grade school. You don't use the same tutor all the way through college. You've taken off into this new thing, and that's what this was, setting it up. Now, if we think about how this flows down into our own life, I wanted to make some comparisons so we can understand what this looks like. This religion versus the gospel. Religion says, I obey, therefore... I'm accepted. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. God's going to get me or bad things are going to happen to me, so I better do something. But gospel, motivation is based on a grateful joy of what Jesus has done for me, and then we get to live from that place. Religion, I obey God in order to get things from God, right? You've heard this preached before, talked about. If you do these things, God will bless you and give you wealth and health and prosperity and life. Make us so into your future of these things, right? You've heard these things. That's religion. I obey God in order to get things from him. The gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight, and then to resemble him. Religion, in the old stone water versions of ourselves, is when circumstances of my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself. 
since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. This is the construct of religious thinking. Even if you're not formally religious from the past, or even if you find yourself, you're watching with us right now, you're atheist, you still think you deserve a comfortable life, that the universe owes you because you're a good person. I've asked many, many, many people, why do you think you're going to heaven? Like, why do you think you're going to live in this relationship and community with God in this new heaven and this new earth when you die? And their response is typically, well, because I'm a good person. And then they go to extreme and they use it as a comparison. Well, because I'm not Hitler, right? And it's like, because you're not Hitler, you deserve to be uh, comfortable in life in this space, right? In the recesses of our brains, people think like that. We think like that. That's religion. Gospel, though, says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Religion says that when I'm criticized, I'm actually furious or devastated because it's essential for me to think of myself as a good person and threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs, right? I, I, I'm not going to have anyone thinking that I'm not a good person. Like, that's the way that I, I've been taught to structure myself, and this is how I have it together, right? And I need to get rid of anything that's going to threaten that. But the gospel says that when I'm, when I'm criticized, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion is my prayer life consists of petition and <laughs> only heats up when I'm in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control circumstances. Ooh. Do you feel yourself doing that? These are religious impulses in the gospel. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration for who God is. My main purpose in praying is fellowship with him. See, there, that's the difference. That's, that's Jesus, that he's come to give us this new way of being human, this new thing that we get to embrace. And how beautiful is this, that this is what the story means for the world. But real quickly, I just want to pivot the last bit of our time to what does this mean for you personally? It says in... Uh, Verse 6, right here, if you jump to that. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the, for the ceremony washes, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Remember that, 20 to 30 gallons. Next one. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Have you thought about that? 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this, 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 like, party only needed, like, 40 bottles of wine left. But he took six jars that were about this wide and about this tall, if you go and see them. And he takes them, and he fills them all the way up to the brim. And I, and I love that he said, fill them up to the brim, because essentially he was saying, I don't want to leave any room left in there. We're going we're gonna to fill this whole thing up. It's going to be overflowing. There's no room for anything else left in there. And so if you add that up, 20 to 30 gallons at six jars, he literally was making 900 bottles of wine. 
Do you think this party needed that? It did not need it. Now, one thing is the wine was different then, right? It was probably better with that stuff, but the alcohol rate wasn't as high as the stuff y'all are drinking today. But 900 bottles of wine, and then filled to the brim, and I think it's because you can't go back. You can't go back for any water. It's now, there's no longer water. It's this new thing that you can't go back for something else. There's not space for you to go back and to find and to see something else. You get more power than you need. You get more forgiveness than you may think that you need. And there's this way that, that we think when we're looking at this, we're like, man, I don't know if Jesus can forgive me for these things, you know. It's just been so long that I've been doing this thing or this habit or there's no way he's going to forgive me for this mistake or I fumbled it again. There's no possible way. There's not enough grace for this. And I think that this painting a picture that Jesus is saying this new thing is coming, the law has done its job, and now grace is coming, and it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 900 bottles of grace filled to the brim, overflowing. And Moses was good, but like the law was good, and Moses gave us something beautiful to connect to, but you've kept the good wine until now, and this is better. If you look... And you see, as the story continues right there, we're going to throw up on the screen. So then he told him to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. You know, the next. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the, the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have got when they've had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This is what I think it means for us. I think for us it means this verse 10. Verse 10 only just says this. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you... You have saved the best until now. You saved the best until now. The law was good. He didn't bring out the box stuff. You now are doing something on top of that. Can you believe that the best is yet to come for you? That Jesus wants to give you new wine in your life? That transformation can happen, this transformation, this purification that used to happen in ceremonies of this washing, now is this transformation that's happening because of grace and because of the ultimate sacrifice that that's going to represent. This transformation offers you a life where your, your relationships are better, your marriage is better, the way you deal with money is better, the way you interact with people is better. Your homes, your communities, and the world friends can look and feel better because of transformation. And the, the vision that Jesus has for every single one of you that's watching and that's here today is the more that you deny it and run from the new thing where you just want to go back to Egypt, you just want to go back to like the way it was and you just want to go grab this thing that was comfortable to you, the more you just stave off purification and transformation in your life. And over time, as you let Jesus work on you, 
That's the practical micro stuff that's going to change and be purified in you as God changes you because he wants to make it better. I know sometimes that can be difficult for us to grasp new things. When you uh, think about how is wine made, well, grapes are crushed (laughs) to make wine, right? I don't know how many of you have ever had to have uh, surgery. There's something, a part of you that needs to be cut and fixed to be made new, right? It's painful, um, but there's a transformation that takes place in your life. And so today, friends, I want to ask you, are you ready to embrace the new? Are you ready to leave the old, to walk away for that, to experience the new wine that Jesus may have for you and your life? And for some of you, maybe for the first time, experiencing what grace and truth look like in love by the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you right now, Lee, would you stand if you're with us online or here in the room? I actually just want us to respond and worship in song as we allow Jesus to make new wine in us.